0: Previously on the Mario Rosenstock podcast,
1: but like he goes up like so many flights, my thighs were burning. Living with him, like actually chafing. Hello, Stopped. Lucy. This is Enda
0: Kenny again. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't overhear you saying your thighs were burning. Now
2: that very much intrigued me. Would Chase? you like me to start Chase? eating biscuits? No, again? no, no, no please. Here I go. Mm. <laughs> thighs are burning, Lucy.
0: Oh yeah. <clears throat> Lucy, I'll yes. pass you back to Mario now. OK,
1: thanks, Anton. Just
0: give us an old boom-boom there, will you? Boom-boom. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm tugging away like
2: mad here.
1: Oh, Jesus. <laughs> i <totally gets> sick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't already had a chance to listen to my recent interview with uh, the lovely Lucy Kennedy... Well, you've been missing out, uh, and uh, Lucy, of course, is quite topical for us at the moment because her um, Living With Lucy program is back on the television, and I was watching her
2: interview Paul Gascoigne the, the other day, and he was talking about, you know, all the things of fags and everything that he smoked, and oh.
0: it was actually quite sad in a way because Paul um, Gascoigne is, is, is not the same as he used to be, and um, but he still seems to be enjoying life, and Lucy, I must say, got great great mileage out of him. And uh, and I think she makes people feel at ease. She's a great interviewer and uh, she's a fantastic sense of humor as well. And we had a great uh,
2: great great conversation on the on the podcast. He was talking about Jack Charlton and everything was together.
0: He kind of sounded like um, Jack Charlton was in the back of his throat actually when I do that impression. Um so make sure to swipe down a few episodes on the series and click and play that one. Um uh, also don't forget interviews with Ian Dempsey and Connor Sketches, um the brilliant impressionist Al Foran who I really enjoyed Dirren. so there's lots of people who are like me that I've interviewed but lots of people who are not like me that I've interviewed as well but of course do all that only after you've listened to this episode all the way through if you can because it's not every day you meet a man who drove across America with the great actor Sean Penn yes he did a man who developed a cocaine addiction through his friendship with a dealer named Cuban Mike. Yes, he did. Auditioned top Hollywood actresses like Renee Zellweger and learned rebel songs directly from Christy Moore. Peter Sheridan has done it all and has lived to tell the tales on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. You're in for a real treat with this one, folks. If you like fellas who can tell stories and tell them well and have a great gravelly Dublin voice along with it, uh, then Peter is your man. Uh, he's a great author, author, Peter, playwright, director. He was my director in Iquino, um back in all the way back in 2005, and we had a brilliant time together doing that. He has a new play called Philo starting on October 21st in the Sean O'Casey Theatre in Dublin. You'll find tickets to that on Eventbrite, and I strongly encourage you to go and see it. Anything that Peter is involved in always is jam-packed with integrity and uh, and insight. Uh, we met in the studio just a few days ago a few days ago and boy did he tell me some great stories and he said pete in all my years nobody's
1: ever bought me a bottle of brandy before you're my brother and I had free coke for life.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I had a supply of coke that was so outrageous. Scarface Levels, you were a Dublin Al Pacino. Say hello to my little friend.
1: <laughs> Roy Kane assumed that Roy was more of an Irishman than Mick. Mick McCarthy is an absolute true Irishman. Mm-hmm. A warrior for us. Mm. He was a warrior as a player. Mm. He was a warrior as a manager. And how dare anybody decry the fact that he's less Irish because he speaks with an English mm. accent. That journey finished after a phone call he made to Robin Wright Penn. He got back into the car, he said to me, drive me to the airport in Colorado. I said, why have you got home? He said, it's it's Robin just gone mad about the kids and I'm afraid she's going to jump state with them and I'll never see them again. you got to get me
2: to an airport. It's just you're a compelling storyteller, Peter, and... I don't know, you're very easy to write songs about because (laughs) I write songs about Irish heroes and you make Silken Thomas look like a fucking boar, to be honest with you. So
0: So stay tuned for this great chat with Peter Sheridan coming up right after this week's brand new and exclusive comedy sketch. Now, the big story of the moment, of course, I couldn't get away from it this week on Gift Grub. All of my sketches this week on Gift Grub were dedicated to this uh, subject. And it's, of course, the reopening of uh, society, the so-called Freedom Day, that hasn't really uh, transpired at all. And, of course, a lot of the attention is focused on nightclubs, hasn't it? And uh, the kind of the ins and outs of uh, how we'll get around uh, going to the nightclubs and all this sort of stuff. And it seems that if we're dancing, we can do pretty much whatever we want. And I think Michael Flatley, I had him on the radio going, Jesus, be Jesus and be garish, sure, if we just dance everywhere, dance up to the bar, dance into the jacks, dance while you're eating, dance while you're talking, dance while you're shifting. Everything. You can do anything if you dance, apparently. Um, but um, the Mario Rosenstock podcast hotline has been buzzing, of course, with messages from all sorts of people who are very excited about getting back to their favourite clubs. You might recognise some of them.
2: Hello there. This is Professor Sam McConkie. Could you let listeners of your podcast know if they are intending on frequenting a nightclub uh, stroke discotheque establishment this weekend? In order to gyrate or rise animalistically in one of those filthy petri dishes of bacterial transmission, please exercise social distancing. And remember, masks are mandatory, particularly while they are getting the so-called shift revolting.
0: Hello, Mario. This is Panty Bliss, loving your podcast. Can you tell your listeners it's open season tomorrow night at Panty Bar? Um, It's Raining Men's special, two for one. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's coming. Even Leo. Ciao, ciao, Mario.
2: Mario, this is Julian Benson of Dancing with the Stars. Girlfriend, what can I say? I love, love, love your podcast. But the nightclubs are open. The freedom has come. Liberation. This is Tamango's tactic. My New Yorkers are going to be so on point tomorrow night. This is Restrictionsalicious. Hey, Mario, Mario, Mario. This is the notorious McGregor. Nightclubs are open, baby, open sesame. Even more opportunities to punch DJs in the face, <laughs> e- eviscerating innocent bystanders, and paralyzing and decapitating defenseless old men to forder Sully my already tattered reputation. It's business time. Doctor Stoppage <laughs> Hey <coughs>
0: There you have it, and don't forget that the Mario Rosenstock Podcast hotline is open to everyone. You can send me a WhatsApp voice note anytime. We'd love to hear your stories, jokes, comments, anything that's on your mind. The number is 087-268-5459. 087-268-5459. I listen to everything and anything that you send me. So if there's something that interesting that you'd like to talk about, something that someone you'd like to suggest me to... Um, interview some comedy sketch that you'd like me to do or that you've appreciated drop me a line I'd love to hear your voice you can also contact me if you don't want to be heard you can contact me directly on Mario Rosenstock at gmail.com and again I read and get back to all the people who have and will contact me thanks to everyone who's dropped me a voice note so far I'm on Twitter at Gift Grub Mario as well and I'm on Facebook and all that other stuff thanks as ever to Curry's PC World for their ongoing support of the podcast they stock a great range here's the sales bit They stock a great range of kitchen appliances if you fancy sprucing up your kitchen. And I can testify to that uh, personally because I've been up there, especially to the one in Blanchardstown, and it is a brilliant store full of stuff. I'm obsessed with their TVs, but anyway, that's another thing. Uh, And of course, loads of lovely gadgets and tech, tech like speakers and TVs and laptops and loads more. If you fancy treating yourself or someone else to a nice Christmas present, you could do worse than go to Curry's. In fact, you could do no better than go to Curry's. I'm, I'm bound to say that though, aren't I? But they've been great supporters of this podcast and thank you very much to everybody up in Curries uh, for your continuing support. Well, let's get to the chat, So, with Peter Sheridan. So many stories, so many opinions and a good few laughs along the way. We worked together, as I say, full disclosure, on iKino uh, a few years ago, the musical about Saipan and Roy and Mick. And uh, we were all wearing togas and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Peter was my director and we started our chat there with Peter explaining why he got involved in this project in the first place?
1: Well, you know, one of the big obsessions of my life is sport. And I love when sport and the arts meet. So some of my favourite things, I'm going to be talking later on about Billy Crystal. Yeah. Some of my favourite things are related to sport. So let me tell you a bit about the sport thing. I was absolutely soccer crazy growing up. My dad was a huge soccer fan. We weren't a Gaelic household at all. In those days, you were either soccer or Gaelic, we were soccer. So I lived for the weekend, the first division, Man United. My dad took me up to Drumcondra Road when Liam we- Whelan's remains came in. Okay. And I ho- held my dad's hand and I was a Manchester United supporter for life. And still In, are in that moment. Yeah. And still am. Yeah. And my dad loved the football. Happy to see Ronaldo back? Completely, 100%. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. But when I was a kid, I was a very good soccer player and I played for Sheriff United. I captained Sheriff United under 12 and then I was poached by a team from Ring's End called Bolton Athletic. Hmm. So I went to Bolton Athletic and I established myself there as a very decent player. And Billy Bean paid a visit to our house where I lived. In he Saberfest.
0: was the Manchester United
1: Scout, wasn't he? He was the Manchester United Scout. So we told my dad I had real potential, oh. keep an eye on me and all of that kind of stuff. And we did a trial. There was a trial held in the Phoenix Park where they got together, 22 young fellas, myself included, um, and we played a match. And I I didn't make it as a footballer. I wasn't that good. I was good, but not great. Uh, And I fell in love with the theatre at about the time that I could have probably dedicated myself to football. Mm. I discovered the theatre again through my father. My father introduced me to plays. And the reason my father introduced me to plays was we had a major tragedy in the family. My young brother died, Frankie. It's in everything that we write. It's in in our DNA, Jim, myself. We tell stories about it all the time. But when Frankie died, my father took it really, really badly. I think he kind of blamed himself on Frankie's death in some weird way. Um, And he took to the bed and he literally fell apart emotionally. And my mother took over the running of the house. And my mother was utterly and completely amazing in that period of our family's life. She held the ship together. She was utterly fantastic. But after about a year, my dad got out of the bed and came down and made an announcement to the family that he was going to become an actor. (laughs) That he had always wanted to be an actor. What all age was he when he life, did that? 42, 43. Right. So midlife transition. Midlife transition. He worked at the train station in Amiens Street yeah. in the booking office. But now he was going to dedicate himself to fulfilling his lifelong ambition. <laughs> that <laughs> life great. was too short. Yeah. Frankie had died. And literally a year after Frankie's death, we met in the Oriel Hall, just off Seville Place. And we sat down and we read the plays of Sean O'Casey, one after the other. And my father gave out the roles, gave out the parts. And suddenly I was reading these plays that could have been set in our kitchen. I didn't know these plays were 1920s. I didn't know who really who Sean O'Casey was. I didn't know his connection with the Oriel Hall, which was profound. I didn't know his connection with Seville Place and East Wall and the North Circular Road and the Five Lamps. But Sean O'Casey was bound up in all of these things, which I was to discover then in my journey through the theatre with my
0: father. And in a sense, you didn't know theatre would have been like this, and then no. so far you were so you were engaged yeah. and immersed in this yeah. theatre, which you didn't understand. Yeah. You said this was fantastic. Look, for example.
1: I based my, I, I was cast as Tommy Owens in The Shadow of a Gunman. Mm-hmm. He's a little, sort a of little fella from the two pair back. A big mouth. Is there t- one or two Ks in shocking? Mr Gallagher? You yeah, know, yeah. He's that fella when they're reading the letter in the second act, yeah. in the first act. And uh, so I kind of fell in love with these players. And uh, I was just on a journey. I was, it was like a light bulb going on in my head. I just thought, this is the most incredible way to tell a story people sitting down representing different characters in a situation and there's a drama taking place mm. and you work it out. Mm. And in so many aspects of the O'Casey plays were like our lives. They were like, they, they were like an aspect of our lives. The central character in, in Shadow of a Gunman is this guy who sells stuff out of a, a suitcase, um, Shields, Seamus Shields. Sure, that was me dad. Me mm. dad spent his life doing knickknacks, mm. doing mm. odd jobs. Oh, sorry, did your dad become then an actor? Yeah. Okay. We start, he started a drama yeah. society, the St. Lawrence O'Toole's musical. So he and he followed through? He followed through. Cast himself as Seamus Shields. Me as... And off we went on this journey, travelling around all the amateur drama festivals, winning loads of prizes, coming back, performing in the Oriel Hall, doing review shows. Then my dad loved a bit of review, comedy and drama mixed together. Then we did uh, Juno and the Peacock, where I played joxer, to my father's Captain Boyle. Oh, great. Now it's weird for a father and son to play those two characters.
0: Wow, what a what a lovely way for a father and son to... In- incredible.
1: Incredible. I mean, I mean, the fun and crack we had, the two of us, especially in this, when they're eating the sausage yeah.
0: in the first act. Did your relationship change totally then from your father being one... Some of his life up to 42 years of age like this and then that. Did your relationship with him totally change, possibly for the better? It, it changed in that it kind of almost became like a professional thing. Hmm. I, I, I kind
1: of realised that... Um, you know, he he wasn't just my de- like emotionally. He he never became that available again after Frankie's death. Mm. He never really healed from that. Yeah, that was the that was the kind of the the tragedy that it was impossible to recover yes. from. And in many ways, he he kind of
0: he kind of got lost,
1: and he found the theatre, and I found the theatre with him.
0: So in that whole in that lovely in that lovely monologue Peter you you sum up your your relationship professional and mm. personal with your father mm. your love of theater your love of God mm. Um, mm. Beckett, and and all of that and for full disclosure here we come and you're directing me in Aikino and what this was a, the crossover oh. between sport and theater yeah. for you and this yeah. really weird extraordinary funny mad mm. play yeah I, I mean I was the
1: chairman of Andrews Lane Theatre just around the corner here at the time Pat Moylan my great friend my best friend was owning and running the theatre and I was trying to help her do that so we were always talking about ideas together and she knew Arthur Matthews quite well she knew Arthur's sister and uh, she said Arthur has a couple of scenes written um, she said, would you have a look at them? It's about football. I know nothing about football. So I went home and read these scenes and I laughed out loud. It's not often you laugh out loud reading a script. So
0: you laughed at it on paper, this Aikino I theory. literally yeah.
1: laughed. It, w- it wasn't even Ikeeno at that stage. It was just a, a series of little sketches. Yeah. They weren't
0: even scenes. So and Aikino, w- for those who don't know, hmm. is the story of Saipan, Mick yeah. McCarthy and Roy yeah. Keane, but set in Roman times and we're all wearing togas. Yeah. I mean, it's just a genius idea. I mean, it's Monty
1: Python. Yeah. I mean, it, it, its origins, its genesis is really a mon- it's a Monty Python esque play. Yeah. And I look Monty Python at their best are complete genius. Yeah. I mean, they're fantastic. Yeah. And this, at its best had a whole resonance of Monty Python about it. Yes. As you say, you know, we're rowing to the island of Saipan. Yeah. We can't get there in time because they don't provide us with the proper hours. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it was yeah. just like a metaphor <laughs> for, <laughs> for <laughs> everything that was wrong yeah. with Irish football. And, and, and,
0: and this was an extraordinary play, though, because you directed it and we hmm. had fun doing it. And hmm. we, we, we had even more fun, I suppose, when it started because much to our, I suppose, we didn't know, but much, it absolutely blew up. Hmm. And I remember, for example, my memories of the play were the opening night Hmm. and the opening night were like there were lines in the first few uh, Hmm. pages where I'm going, I don't know. Nobody knows how the audience is going to react to this. Hmm. So, for example, I peeked out through the curtain. um, I I was playing Kino. I peeked out through the curtain and I saw the first four rows of the audience were all wearing Irish shirts. I was going, I'd never seen a theatre audience like that before. And then I came out and my first line as Roy Keane was, hello. That's right. And of course, on paper, it's just hello. Yeah. After I said hello, there was basically a standing ovation. People went nuts. And for the next five minutes, all you could hear was, Keto, Keto. And then you knew it was tribal. It was mm. me against Mick McCarthy. Well, and we had all this fun yeah. where yeah. The pe- cra- the cra- ordinary people who mm. had never been to the theater before mm. came to the theater and watched plays. And the other
1: thing, I mean, there are several things about Ikea you know, that were kind of unique women buy 80 to 90% of the theatre tickets. But for this show, men were buying the theatre tickets. <laughs> yeah. They were bringing their girlfriends and wives. And
0: men who usually didn't go yeah. to the
1: theatre. and men who wanted to be at this show, yes, wherever it was, because it had to do with keen and that event and Saipan. Yes. The issue at the core of iKino was incredibly serious. It only deserved to be made fun of, as Oscar Wilde would have said. Yes. <laughs> it was so important, it needed to be laughed at. It was so important. But I spent stupid. weeks... On RTE radio, particularly the Marion Finucane show, they were ringing me every two or three days to go on and defend Mick McCarthy against Roy Keane over what happened in Saipan. People were on the radio wanting to start a civil war in Ireland. It literally was as deep an issue as the civil war, as the treaty debates had been. In 1921, Saipan and what had happened was as relevant to the Irish, particularly male population, at that moment. So we had an incredibly brilliant, powerful issue at the core of something and the best fun you could ever have about an issue so
0: serious. And in a sense, it was an issue so stupid that became so serious, in other words, football. But the reason it became serious is because Anything can become a polarizing point, uh, uh, Peter. And one of the things about Ikeno was, what, it, in my opinion, what it polarized or brought people's attention to was the idea of who are we and mm. how we do things. Mm. And Ikeno was really two sides. It'll be grand or we do it right. And one person was on the side of, at least on the, on the surface, we're going to do this right. Mm. And the other fellow was on the side of, look, it'll be fine. It'll yeah. be fine and the FAI and the scribes saying it'll be fine. Yeah. And, there was, and all that sort of stuff. That's but, one. Yeah. One. But there was one really, really important issue at the core of it mm-hmm.
1: in, in terms of the positions that represented by Roy Keane and Mick McCarty. Mick McCarty speaks for a Barnsley accent. He's as Irish as you or me. That was the question. Roy Kane assumed because Mick had that English vibe about mm-hmm. him with the accent. So he that, questions his, na- that his he na- was nationhood. More, that not, Roy was more of an Irishman than Mick. He's mm. not more of an Irishman mm. than Mick. Mick McCarthy is an absolute true Irishman, mm-hmm. a warrior for us. Mm. He was a warrior as a player. Mm. He was a warrior as a manager. Mm. And how dare anybody decry the fact that he's less Irish because he speaks with an English mm. accent. I thought that was really important and it was really important that we
0: deal and say something about that and the play did say things about that it did but it also said things on other stuff as well which is hugely important in our society things like gombinism mm. and the uh, waste mm. and 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 cheating and mm. lying and lying about the waste mm. so for example this was seen through the uh, the the uh, FAI and their slovenliness and then their, the scribes then in their sycophancy and their mm. ability to take, mm. uh, to take sort of bribes almost as for their, for the, to shut up mm. about it all, you know. So it raised very big issues yeah. about, in a very si- silly, funny way. And it was just, it was just great, great fun. Having said that, Peter, just to, now that we're on the Aikino thing, obviously I was playing Roy Keane, right? And sometimes when you play somebody like that, you fall in love with them. And I had been performing them on the radio, and have been mm. since until now for years and years. And in a way, you fall in love with them, and it takes you need to grow older to try and step back from them. So I was on Roy Keane's side back in two thousand and four. But since time has passed, I must say I've not changed, but just reviewed my situation, and I much more see I much more see mixed conundrum and mix uh, dichotomy. I would have been more on McCarthy's side so at I the time, yeah. and, and are you still? at the time that
1: we did I, Kino, yet yeah a part of me still feels that you know he was he was in a terrible position yeah and that Roy didn't behave as he should have behaved yeah that's what I think mm. I, I thought that at the time and I haven't changed my opinion on that yeah. and I have spent my life standing up to bullies mm. I hate bullies and I hate people who bully people
0: oh well, that's very and
1: whenever I smell it and whenever I see it I'm in there Because I don't like bullies. And I felt that that Roy was a bully in that that moment because he had so much going for him in terms of what he represented and who he was that he needed to be more measured. And, you know, to me, he, he tapped into the emotion of it and went with the emotional thing of it when he needed to be more considered.
0: Yeah. okay, fantastic. We leave it there. Actually, I join you on the bullies um thing actually uh, mm. as you grow older you mm. you you i suppose you find out a bit more about yourself and mm. what you really are and mm. you, you kind of lay at times you have to lay your own cards on the table to yourself about what you are and one of the things that i've decided for a long time that i hate most in life is people pushing other people around mm-hmm. who have the ability to it's i guess that's called bullying but it really really i don't know there's there's something in me which is a little social justice warrior Mm. and um, you can't stop it from coming out in yourself. Mm. Um, I remember feeling it when I was 12 or 13 and then maybe it passed and I went through other stages of my life and then it came back and every so often it comes back until I realised that's part of me. I just fucking hate bullies Mm. and I hate Mm. bullying Um, and I hate people. uh, I hate people um, taking advantage of other people especially when they cover it up and pretend they're not. In other words, it's almost more admirable to be a bully in the open and go, I'm a bully than a bully who covers up and bullies people pretending they're not a bully. That's more disgusting to me. But anyway, we move on. We did this play together. And of course, you'd come off the back of, you know, your whole life loving theater and being a theater um, producer and or a, a director and being a film director and being a playwright. Um, and you know Project Arts Centre in the 70s with your brother and everything a very vibrant time and Gabriel Byrne and all these people knocking around and some fun and a very vibrant even in the world the 70s was a wonderful time for the cinema and theatre and very creative even in the doldrums Mm. that was Mm. Ireland in the 70s Um, but what I'd love to uh, uh, come to is jump ahead and and go backwards in the story and just this story the story of you driving around um, America with Sean Penn Mm. how that happens why it happens, watch, what, what, how, what happened during that drive? So why did it happen? It what were you expe- doing? In
1: well, a- I wasn't expecting that question, but it's a good question. <laughs> um, and it's obviously something I will never forget. Uh, I had always wanted to do something on Brendan Bean. Always. I mean, Bean grew up, the Beans grew up a couple of hundred yards from where we were. So I, was na- I naturally felt an affinity to them. Um, and I had done an adaptation of Brian Bean's book, Mother of All the Beans, in the late 80s with Rosalie and It became a big hit. It was probably my biggest success um, in my career, certainly up to that point. And we had a tremendous time with that. And out of doing Mother of All the Beans, I got more and more involved in the world of Brendan. Um I went back to Barcel Boy and Barcel Boy had had a big impact on me. It was one of the first shows I ever saw. It was certainly the first show I ever saw in the Abbey Theatre in 1967. Neil Tobin played Bean. And a guy called Frank Grimes played the young being. And it absolutely was revolutionary for a whole new generation of theatre goers. The idea of a young Republican going to England like that at, at 15, you know, wanting to sort of unify Ireland by blowing up Liverpool. I mean, how crazy and insane was all that? And yet when you explore this individual, he was utterly fascinating, contradictory, lovable, despicable... He had horrible characteristics about him. He had wonderful characteristics about him. He was just an incredible mix of a man. Um, and I could be here all night talking about Brendan. I, I, I love Brendan. Um, so Jim had done My Left Foot, which, in a kind of a way, was my project because I had done a stage version of the Christy Brown story oh. with Jim directing. Um, it didn't really work. Yeah. We lost money on it, it didn't succeed. And Jim said, there's a movie in it. There's a movie in mm. it. So I said, you better run with that one. You better go on. So, so
0: not Noel Pearson saw that. It was Jim that saw the, yeah. the idea that it could be a yeah. cinema yeah. release. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, Pearson was, yeah. was close to Christy Brown. Yeah. So there was two of them in it. So Jim went off and did My Left Foot and Fair Play and the rest is history. Um, but when that became very successful, he said to me, you, you do this. You, you need to do the being. Mm. You need to do the being film. So we looked around for, you know, somebody to play it. And I mean, obviously, people would always say, well, what about Neil Tobin? And, you know, you think, well, he's not a star. You wouldn't put a budget together in America, certainly, on Neil Tobin Mm. at that time. Um, And there was no other Irish actor that was a natural. Gabriel wasn't a natural being, you wouldn't have felt, you know. um, And there was no other Irish actor sort of about the breakthrough right around that time. So we were looking to the States, and somebody suggested Sean Penn because he looked...
0: Yes, but so he like does being he did, yeah. He does. He does. He has a look of him. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's especially the profile and the yeah, nose and yeah. the shape of the head. Yeah. It's kind of a little longer. Yeah. And if 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 Sean Penn put on just a little bit of weight around the face, he'd be this spit of him. Yeah. And the well, nose.
1: Well, Jim Jim said, "Come on to L.A. and we we'll, we'll meet up with him. We'll, we'll meet him." So I went to Los Angeles and I met Sean. And from the get-go, from that immediate thing, we got on. So good start. There was an absolute bond between us very quickly so much about him I found really interesting like he's called Sean after Sean O'Casey his mother is Ryan from Tipperary he loves Ireland he loves the whole Irish thing he loves you know the badness of being you know the more bad he is the better Sean likes him Um, some of the old footage of Brendan you know where I bring that Fuck you, and double fuck you! She goes, "I never heard that before. I never heard that before. Play that again. Play that again." So he's loving him. He'd want to be listening back to the stuff and those interviews that he did on U.S. television that were that's d- right. Legendary. I saw some of those. They're legendary. They are. Right? I mean, some of the stuff he came out with. Sean was just loving this guy, yeah. absolutely loving this guy. And the first thing he decided was that he was going to he was going to have his teeth ground down, the two front ones, because Brendan lost them in a fight. So in a lot of photographs of Brendan at that period, he has no front teeth. And Sean thought it would be great because he loved the idea of going to extremes, Sean Penn, to have his teeth ground down. And I was fighting with him from day one Mm. saying, you can't do that to your teeth. I'm not going to allow you (laughs) to grind your teeth Mm. down. And he was saying, no, we leave the stubs. It'll be okay, Peter. And it was all that, you know.
0: And uh, so I I hung out. So hold on, this fella now is... Now he's grinding down his teeth, so he's saying, "I'm in." Yeah, I'm playing. Beat. Oh no, he,
1: he wanted in right okay. from the get go. From mm. the time I showed him the footage of being in, mm. in America in those on those TV shows, mm. he was like, "I want to play this guy. I want to be this guy. I want to mm. be this man." Um, and he knew that I knew a lot, and obviously I'm Irish and I'm Dublin and all of that, um, and sort of my background in the theatre and all that would have been very similar to his own. His mum's an actress, his dad's a TV director. He comes from a a kind of an entertainment family, but he's a, he's a radical, he's rebellious, he'd be left-wing, you know, he'd be all of that. He'd be on that Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, yeah. sort of Hollywood kind of bad boys, you know, boys wanting to change the world, mm, you know. Kennedy, Democrat. Exactly, all of that, motivated and all of that stuff. And I remember, you, you asked me how I ended up driving what I said to him, you know, we, we just need to, I said, we need to get a few days together where I just take you through what I think the journey of Brendan's life is. Yeah, where there's no interruption, where there's nobody else. He said, yeah, let's, he said, let's drive across America together. I said, that's a fantastic idea. He said, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. He said, I only ever did it once before. He said, but I'd love to do it again. So we were trying to make arrangements to do it. And he was shooting a film called Dead Man Walking, which is about a guy getting a lethal injection to kill him. He's, he's been, found guilty of a crime and he said to me, he said, I'm finishing shooting that on, let's say it was the 18th of March. He said, if I don't get away on the 19th of March, we won't get this done. You come to New York, come to the rap party and the next day we'll set off for LA. So I met him in New York. He had a car called a, a Buick Grand National,
2: okay, yeah.
1: a big motherfucker of a car enormous thing and the two of us jumped in the car and we headed off and the only thing we had in the car i mean at that time mobile phones were enormous things yeah like you couldn't even get proper reception in a car with the phone so you were kind of left alone and you would have to stop in certain places to make a phone call and then you could make a call but it was kind of uninterrupted now his head after that movie that he had just made was completely melted Mm. There was no talking in the car.
2: Mm.
0: He was catatonic.
1: For the first two days, there was no conversation. Now, the thing about me is, because I don't drink anymore or do drugs, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Yeah. I, I'm comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. I don't need to be rabbit non and I don't need to be, you know... Having conversations that I don't need to be having, and I'm not a star-struck person. I don't get struck by people who are famous. I I, I can see through that very yeah. quickly. So you
0: were grand I, the first. I'm not days. interested.
1: Yeah. So we just that first two days we listened to, um. Dolores O'Riordan, singing, hmm. and other people. I brought tapes with me of people, the Dubliners, Luke Kelly. Hmm. So we were just driving and not talking, and. I said to Sean, I'm, I'm totally okay with this. I said, you, you just go asleep there if you want. And you do what you want. I said, "But I'm really enjoying this driving through
0: upstate New York. If you ever then, want to talk about Brendan, B, yeah, just yeah, let me know. Yeah, you know yeah. Yeah. Four days to go, Sean, if you ever feel like. His name is Brendan, <laughs> um, the guy you're thinking of playing, yeah. So anyway, being, oh, you're asleep, okay, yeah, okay, go on. But that was it, like it was that, it was it. And then I, mm.
1: we booked into hotels at night time mm. and, but you, you know, didn't sleep in the same bed like you and Jim no we didn't no. sleep in the same bed but he was yeah. always looking for a thrill you know yeah. so wherever the gentleman's club was that's where he wanted to go and right. then, you know once he ap- appeared in a place like that everybody came around him it's like royalty you know yeah did
0: he like Every- the attention
1: loved it yeah. wanted to buy it, everybody wanted to buy him mm. a drink And mm. he had great stories about people putting stuff in his drink over the years mm. nearly killed him a couple of times mm. yeah people would love to do it in Sean Penn Those people who hate him
0: yeah because he was quite a, a polarising yeah, character he's he himself his relationship with Madonna and everything totally polarising Yeah, Sean Penn is wound up to the max he, going oh, in his brain he's forgotten about dead man walking he's forgotten and he's, about dead man walking Sean, and, he's and Brendan Bean is in his mind
1: he, he's listening to me telling stories and, and by the way, and you're, said, are you and, going
0: to direct this Peter oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. and co and, and co yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and one of the big things for Sean because Sean just kind of just loves living on the edge The fact that I'm a sober guy, the fact that I gave up the drink a couple of years previous to this, I gave up in 89 and this was like 92, 93. So I was three years off the drink and the drugs and he felt really safe with me. He knew that I wouldn't bring him into danger, that I would look after him. Mm. So he could kind of relax a good bit and kind of be himself. Mm. So on that journey across America, you know, I I could feel this growing bond between the two of us on that basis of I was kind of like a little bit of a father figure to him. I was kind of looking after him in the same way that my father looked after me creatively when I was 15 and Frankie was dead. And my father had introduced me to all of this world of Sean O'Casey. I was introducing him to the world of Brendan Bean and the whole thing of Dublin in the 1950s. And we just got on fantastically well. Never had a row. And... There's things about Sean like after we finished th- that journey finished after a phone call he made to Robin Roy Penn uh, on the road we stopped he had to ring her he had to ring Robin Roy Penn he got back into the car he said to me drive me to the airport in Colorado what's the big city in Colorado? Boulder? Bo- no Denver? Denver drive me to Denver airport I have to get home I said why have you to get home he said it's, it's Robin Robin just going mad about the kids and I'm afraid she's going to Jump state with them and um, I'll never see them again. You got to get me, you got to get me to an airport. So I drove Sean to Denver and I drove on to Las Vegas after I dropped him and spent two weeks in Las Vegas in the Buick Grand National, which he left with me, (laughs) right? He he headed off. And uh, then he came to Dublin and he said, I have to make it up to you for jumping ship on the trip. So I said, fine, fine. He said, come on, we go to Amsterdam. I said, no, look, Sean, you got to know something about me. I'm not a wealthy guy, I, I you know, I, I subsist on a ferry. He said, no, no, this is on me, this is on me. I said, Look, I'll pay you back when we make the movie. He said, yeah, pay me back when we make the movie. But that was typical, Sean. He paid for the trip to Amsterdam, plane, hotels, everything. Never put my hand in my pocket. And just he gen- never, ever mentioned it again, ever. Mm-hmm. Just the generosity of him was mm-hmm. just like, Hmm. That was him, you know, hmm. that was him. And like, he'd be sitting in a bar with me, with me Coke or whatever I was having and John a few drinks on him, you know, and he'd say, you're like a blood brother to me. Come oh. here. And he grabbed me hand and he broke a bottle on the table and he cut my hand and he cut his hand and he made us rub blood together. <laughs> Intense. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is like... This is like Stand By Me or something. Yeah, it's like 15-year-olds yeah. yeah. who want to be blood brothers. Yeah. But he loves all that stuff. Yeah.
0: He loves all that. That's
1: really important
0: yeah, well, part of being Look, I'm sorry to puncture your balloon a bit, but part of being a performer and an artist is not growing up and just, <laughs> just fucking staying young. You know, growing up and growing older for daddies who pay mortgages and bills and accountants and stuff like that. Artists stay young so that you can see life through a child's eyes and cut your hands and go, we're blood brothers, bitch. Um. yeah, so come on, the movie. So the movie, you know, I I
1: spent quite a bit of time in in Hollywood auditioning. I mean, one of the great joys of doing a project with John Penn is every actress in the world wants to be in the movie playing his wife, which is Beatrice. And Beatrice I knew very well because obviously she outlived Brendan by a long way. And I got to know Beatrice in her later years very well and I used to take her out to the theatre she loved the theatre and of course her sister was an actress Celia Celia Salkald uh, was a very very well known actress in Dublin in the 50s right into the 60s and uh, so everybody wanted to play Beatrice yes all the actresses and we at auditioning her. level now yeah okay we, so but you're we seeing were, top actresses for the role I saw Renée Zellweger when she was unknown wow she was a total unknown for his wife yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she was kind of, she used to drive around in a, a, a VW van. Yeah. That's how she came. She came <laughs> to the audition in Very a VW good. van. Excellent. And uh, she she was from a part of Texas that I know, yeah. near Austin. And we got on great. Yeah. I got on great with Renee, yeah. And I got on great with M. Um, uh, uh, Beth Davids, the girl who was in, um, with Liam Neeson. In uh, Schindler's List. Oh, okay. Schindler's List. She was fantastic. South African actress. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. Mm-hmm. But like mad stories, the, the things the actresses would do mm-hmm. to try and get your attention. As in to get
0: you in the room or in general?
1: Say they'd audition for you, mm-hmm. right? And then on the way out, you'd notice they dropped something. Yeah. And I'd go to i go to tell them they had dropped something and the casting agent say, like, no, 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 no. It, it's a note for you to tell you something. So... You'd pick up the note and the note would say something like, uh, I prayed to God today to put me in the right place to be this lovely woman, Beatrice. I hope you take me on. Right. Like literally asking to be cast. Yeah. Like these are the, I can't name names. No, no, don't. But we're talking about like some of the most famous people in Hollywood. Pulling uh, stones like that. are, Are doing that stuff. Yeah. And then. Well, they killed their granny for a part. I know, I know. So you're at auditioning stage, and then? And then came back to Ireland, did more rewrites, the whole thing. You know, got the budget together. Budget? Yeah. Got budget. Got a budget. How together. much? At the time, Remember? at the time, I think we were talking about eight million dollars. Yeah. Okay. So pretty small to medium. Small to medium, mm. and we were in pre-production. Had a designer. Had you know all of those other smaller parts cast. And you had
0: cast all the smaller parts. Sean is in.
1: On the Friday before the Monday, he was to come to Ireland. He rang me and said he couldn't come. And why was that? Again, problems with um, personal problems. Yeah, with, with the wife. wife. Yeah. Okay. He said if I go to Ireland, I'll lose my family. And did that put the kibosh on the project? Yeah, killed it stone dead. Fuck. Yeah.
0: What was the name of it?
1: Uh, the Bells of Hell. And the problem is that people who are not involved in this business, you know, outsiders, would always say things to you like. But you could have got somebody else. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: in Hollywood, nobody does the project that John Penn just turned down. No, nobody fills in for Sean Penn. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Good actors, actors at the top range level, they don't fill in. They don't take over when somebody like Sean Penn drops no. out. That's the, the Sean Penn dropout project. Yes. No, I, I wouldn't be doing that. Yes. It doesn't happen that way. No. You don't get people in that way. It just doesn't happen. Mm. And particularly with something like that, which is an Irish project of an Irish character, mm. it's not even like they're playing American. Mm. It's a big deal of a thing to do to take on a, an iconic Irish figure like that. And you're just not going to get anybody.
0: Did he ever contact you again? about? Ah, yeah. To to like, I've, him. I've seen him many, many times yeah.
1: since then. And he always contacts me if he's in Dublin. Yeah, and he was did a thing with Mel Gibson, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. He did. I, I saw him. He had his, I think it was his 50th birthday, was it he, had when he was here. I was at it. I, yeah. was, I was there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if I contacted him, when I, if I'm in the States, if I happen to know he's somewhere, it's only ever friendly and yeah. warm yeah. and, you know. Now, he has, look, he has, de- he has bad sides to him. Yes. You know, he, he dropped me in the shit. He killed my project. I mean, I always remember Mbeth David saying to me, Peter, don't let Sean Payne kill your project. Please don't let John Payne kill your project. Mm. Because they know sometimes. Mm. And I remember, um, uh, who was with Susan Sarandon? Who's the actor? Uh, Tim. Uh, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. I had a, a coffee with Tim Robbins in New York one day with Jim, the two of us. And he was saying, Sean has to be ready, he said. If Sean's not ready, you won't do it. Mm. Now, when I say ready in his head, it's not uh, to do uh, other stuff. It's to do it. Am I ready to take on this thing? Because he puts himself right to the limit for you. And he ain't going to put himself right to the limit unless his head is in a place that tells him, I'm going to put myself
0: out there. I kind of figured that, Peter, when you said he ground his teeth down to a stump so <laughs> absolutely but you uh beautiful story beautiful yeah, story and i love that story
2: this podcast is proudly supported by our friends in curry's pc world back to the chat
0: and one of the things you alluded to there of course was at the time you weren't t- drinking or taking drugs yeah and um i had a i had a, a, a lovely fellow on the podcast ty kicky he's a comedian um he's a cork comedian and um I had him on the Sunday roast, my radio show, uh, a couple of years ago, which you used to appear on as well. Mm. And he told me a very interesting story about being an alcoholic. And, of course, um, it was the idea that, you know, a lot of stories of alcoholism are drowned in depression and mordancy and morbidity and kind of the dark days. But, of course, he told me fantastic stories of his life as an alcoholic. He said it was some of the best crack I yeah, ever had. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you had a kind of a helter-skelter life as a complete alcoholic as well. Um, um and you described that you were, I think you described at one stage that you were, you were, you, you were outside when you were an alcoholic, you were okay. And it's only when you, maybe you came home that you were more angry. Yeah, alcoholic. yeah I, was, I was completely fine mm. in the social setting. Um, and you were functional yeah. as
1: well, able to hold down. Totally functional, mm. yeah. I mean, I, I did make some mistakes um, professionally in my career uh, when I was drinking, but um, yeah, for me, it was all the damage I did within the family. Yeah, Went in the home, to Sheila, to the
0: kids.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: You were a functional, you were a functional alcoholic, and you left it. You know, you did a bit of damage family-wise and everything. Um, but listen, not to be um, facetious or facile about the thing, you added, um, you 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 added, you know, uh, you, you threw the frying pan into the fire as well by adding cocaine onto the into the into mm. the into the mix. Yeah. And of course, this is perfect for an Irishman, of course, because cocaine has the effect of being able to sober you up so that you can drink more. This is true. <laughs> this is true. And so you're there, oh, I don't know, I'm a bit pissed. And I get a bit of cocaine, and then say, I'm sober as a judge. I
2: can do more drink.
1: I got my cocaine habit in LA actually doing a play. It wasn't a film. Was uh, it in the 80s? It was in the 80s, yeah. yeah it was in the mid 80s. Uh, I was working with Colomini. Ah, oh, great. The Great Calumni and his then wife, Barbara, who's since passed away. Uh, we were doing a piece on the hunger strikes, which I'd written um, in a theatre in LA. But he was playing the lead and she was playing his girlfriend. And I was in a hotel uh, on 7th Avenue in in LA, Mexican, mainly Mexican uh, uh, Guatemalan, El Salvadorian workers, all those kind of guys. And the lead guy of all of this troop of immigrants was a Cuban guy who was known as Cuban Mike, and he was the local cocaine dealer. And I drank in the local pub. It was called Monty's of all things, like Monto Monty's. And I drank in this pub and uh, I was a pretty good pool player. I always have been a good snooker and pool player and could really hold my own with these guys. You had real clout when you could hold your own at pool with all of these guys, and Cuban Mike was very impressed that I could beat some of the top guys in the bar at the pool. I became his friend very quickly, and he loved horse racing, and he used to go to Santa Anita all the time. And I always remember it was the time of the, che- the Cheltenham Gold Cup, and I told him that a horse called Dawn uh, Moon. Ah, nineteen
0: eighty-five or six, six.
1: Don Rome would win the Gold Cup. The mare's going to get up, and he got a he got a bet on it, and he won some money, and he gave me a horse in return, which also won, and when that horse won, I bought him a bottle of brandy, in the local off licence, and put it behind the bar for him, which you could do in L.A. And he said, Pete, in all my years, nobody's ever bought me a bottle of brandy before. You're my brother, you're my brother. And I had free coke for life. Right. <laughs> oh, I had a supply of coke that was so outrageous. Never had to put my hand in my book. Scarface levels. Oh, for God's sake. It was just like within three or four weeks, I was in big
0: trouble. You were a Dublin Al Pacino. Say hello to my little friend.
2: <laughs> now, let me introduce you to my brother. Cuban fucking Mike. Now... Shut the fuck up, Mike! Let me take another bit of coke. <laughs> Column shut the fuck up. <laughs> Get your neck out of the brandy.
1: Okay. They made me the general of the bar yeah. on Paddy's Day, 17th of March. The general? I was the general. I was in charge of the bar. Okay. And the only thing I had to do was I had to sing a song in Irish. Yes. What'd they wanted say? to hear my native language. Yes. They put me up on the counter. And they made me sing. So I'm looking down at to see if all Guatemalans, Cubans, El Salvador. And what are you singing? I let me go And all the tears running down their faces. <laughs> <They> t- <laughs> at this Irishman singing in his native tongue. And Cuban Mike, Cuban Mike said, So Pete, what's the fucking problem over there in your country? I said, Mike, the problem is, the British came over and they took our country over. What do you mean they came over? In what way? How did they come over? I said, in boats. He said, in fucking boats. He said, I thought your country was stuck onto them. I thought they came across your border. <laughs> yeah. Like the border we got down south. Yeah. I said, no, no, no. We don't have a border with Britain. The sea. Oh, for fuck's sake. That's as much as they knew about Ireland, you know? Yeah. And uh, so Q and Mike was my, was my local Coke dealer. Yeah. And uh, I came home to Ireland with a very nice habit of cocaine. And was I Ireland doing it at
0: the time? Very small home? amount. Yeah, so
1: this was it, this would have been, yeah. you know, the level I was at was like a level nobody else was at. Mm. And I just, I knew I had to do something about it. I, like I knew. I stopped. Do you so know what then you
0: introduced large amounts of, so you started doing then, you started running tons of cocaine into Ireland then. <laughs> do you know what I did? Sorry. Which is actually true. What? As as a as a, a a way
1: of trying to deflect myself from my problems, yeah. I knew I had a problem with the coke, yeah. and I definitely knew I had a problem with alcohol, and I definitely knew I had a problem with cigarette smoking because mm-hmm. I smoked like a fucking chimney. Yeah. So I looked at the them and I thought, I might get away with giving up the cigarettes here, yeah. and that's what I did. I gave up smoking cigarettes right when I got back to Dublin. Okay, and I said to Sheila after a week at home, "Have you not noticed something? She said, "What?" Well, said, I'm not smoking. Mm. Oh, she said, Jesus, I'd forgotten because of course she didn't smoke. Mm.
0: But you've had she loads said, of energy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you can drink like a horse for some reason. Oh God.
0: <laughs> anyway, I
1: gave up the cigarette 12th of May, 1985.
0: And you, you did. And you mm-hmm. also gave up cocaine and you gave up alcohol as well. And you but described there's, a, yeah, there's a payoff
1: to the cigarette store. Yes. You know, I was, was kind of building it up for you. Oh, OK. OK. So the 12th of May, 1985, I stopped smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. but I knew that I really needed to stop drinking. Mm. It took me another three years to get around to the drink, but I got a lot of brownie points out of giving up the cigarettes Mm. and being the the determined kind of guy that I am and very single minded. I stuck with not smoking and I stuck with it and I banged my head off the wall and trying to write plays as I had done with my cup of coffee and my cigarettes and there was now no fucking cigarettes like I became a coffee addict and a fucking tea addict and anything to put into something in my mouth but I stuck with it and 30 years later I'm doing a gig to launch a book of mine and my wife says to me after there's something wrong with your throat I said what do you mean she said you sound different than you do than you normally do She said, it's just a very definite sound, Peter. She said, I really think you should have it checked out. I said, so I let it go, but it kind of was an idea in my head that wouldn't go away. So four or five weeks later, I went out to see my doc. I said, Sheila says there's something with my voice. My voice is not the same as it was. So she had a look down. She said, she's right. Not you. you. You need to see a specialist. And a week later, a guy said, you have cancer of the esophagus. You've throat cancer. Go on. And he went down through my chart. He looked at all of the things I filled in. He said, you're going to survive it. He said, and there's only one reason that you're going to survive it, that you stopped smoking in 1985. Right. He said, that's the reason you're going to survive. He said, I have men sitting across from me all the time, he said, who are still smoking and they won't make it. Yeah but you've a very good chance. In fact, you have an incredibly good chance. It's very small, but it's there and we need to deal with it. So I underwent 30 sessions of radiation, which dealt with my cancer, got rid of my cancer. And here's the irony of life. The specialist who did all that for me contracted cancer of the stomach, a very rare cancer, and was dead in three weeks. Mm. So it makes you really think on life, how fickle, this whole thing well, is. It brings
0: you back to the... Uh, the
1: guy who cured me, to this, to the, the guy the, who got me through. Sam Beckett. It's the same story. Flicker. It's a flicker. It's just like, how did that happen? Yeah. How did this man with such a wonderful gift who helped me and two friends of mine who were diagnosed at the same time as me were dead within three months. So I feel like a
0: very blessed individual. Yes.
1: And... I was left with a few stories to tell.
0: You are, and a fantastic voice as well. (laughs) (laughs) You have a great voice, great Dublin voice. Um, There's so many other things we could talk about, Peter. But you've, Mm. you're Sean. Sean Penn's story really took up so much great time that I'm going to have to uh, truncate it slightly because I ask all my guests to, for a little checklist. Yeah. Um, uh, comedy. You love the history of comedy series and sky arts. Uh, Billy Crystal at the funeral of Muhammad Ali. What's that? Oh, uh, a got, routine?
1: You've got to watch it. Routine? Well, he did a sh- I didn't know there was a show called 15 Rounds where he does his, his career in 15 rounds. He does Muhammad Ali's career, Billy Crystal. So he starts off, ding, my name is Cassius Clay. And he does the whole beginnings of it. And it is absolutely brilliant beyond brilliant. It is just, what makes it so brilliant is, he's a white guy doing a black man, which shouldn't be allowed. But it's brilliant, so you can't deny it. You can't be going at it. Oh, why are they letting away? Because he also does Howard Cosell here in Zaire. Some people call it Zaire, but they're wrong. It's Zaire. The rumble in the jungle. Exactly, but he does Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali. His Muhammad Ali impression just makes you cry. Right, it's so spot on. Wow. It's. Absolutely brilliant. Uh-huh. And the show is just, you know, his his and I mean he does he does some of the moves and all. I mean it the crowd go mental for it. I oh, say. It's, it's one of the great sporting things of all time. Out of nowhere, the state of Georgia, nineteen seventy, give me a license to come back and fight Jerry Quarry. Ugly Jerry Quarry. How <laughs> could wait only took three rounds? Fuu! Knock that sucker out. Then I went into Madison Square Gun against Oscar Bonavina. Ugly, he's awkward. You know, coming at me. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Fifteen rounds, I had to go. Fifteen rounds, and I used the left hook. Fuu! Knock him out. And now Joe Fraser's the champion. I want Joe Fraser. The
0: winner and still heavyweight champion, Joe Fraser.
1: <laughs> I still think I won
0: now i guess i gotta start all over again finally um uh, uh peter th- it's been brilliant talking to you um and we wanted to ask you would you like to be um s- would you like to be interrogated by miriam O'Callaghan? would you like to be eviscerated by roy Keane, or would you like to be celebrated by christy moore well obviously it's christy
1: um I had a drama project way back, a community project in the early 80s. And I asked Christy to come in and teach them a couple of songs. And this was the first song he taught them. There is a page in history when the workers first fought back. When the might of exploitation at last began to crack. In farm and field and factory, in workshop, mine and mill. That beacon bright, that flaming light, that light shining still. And Connolly was there, Connolly was there, bold, brave, undaunted, James Connolly was
0: there. Well, good afternoon to you, Joe, D- Joe Duffy, would be absolutely delighted with that. The great revolutionary and South the Socialist, uh, James Connolly, celebrated by Peter Sheridan. Peter Sheridan's there. Good afternoon to you. Live line 185715100. If you have any response to Peter Sheridan's song as James Connolly, we'd be delighted to hear it. But um, say hello to Christy. Christy's on the line. He'd like to talk to you.
1: Hello, Christy. How are you doing?
2: How's it going, Peter? I'm absolutely over the moon to be listening to you there today. And the stories of the cocaine and the drinking and the Cubans flying out of roofs and Sean Penn grinding his teeth down on E and blinding everybody and jumping across the desert and Sean Robin Wright Penn jumping straight with the children. It's just you're a compelling storyteller, Peter, and... I don't know, you're very easy to write songs about because <laughs> I write songs about Irish heroes and you make Silken Thomas look like a fucking bore, to be honest with you. So I, writ, I, writ, I wrote, well, I said I writ, but Andy Irvine calls it writ, or um, Donald Lunny calls it wrote. but anyway, I wrote or I writ a little ballad about you and I hope you don't mind. Would you like me to, to sing it for you, Peter? Go for it. That's great. I love your singing, by the way. Uh, don't don't give up the day job. listen here at the Bowron, is there in the background. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Can you hear the old bow around, Peter? Oh, Peter Shardin's the man. There's no one quite like him. Well, there is this other fella, vaguely similar, but that's his brother, Jim. (laughs) Peter's written lovely plays, the best I've ever seen. He'll talk the hind legs off a feckin' donkey (laughs) when it comes to Brendan Bean. (laughs) So I salute the Diane of the (laughs) theatre. Or Quentin Tarantino <laughs> The man who made me Laugh my bollocks off When I went to see Ike <laughs>
1: Peter Yeah Christy is terrific Thank you so much That's a very brilliant <laughs> imitation I mean you've absolutely Nailed that one It's brilliant <laughs> Thank you so it's much It's brilliant
0: Peter Sheridan Thank you so much Okay that's it Make sure you go to see Peter's play Philo if you can. Tickets on Eventbrite are on sale and more details here in the show notes uh, for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to this uh, podcast. It's free. Please leave a rating. Uh, Please leave a comment. Anything you want to do. It really helps um, with us continuing our podcast because the more volume of stuff like that happens, the more we generate a little bit of a buzz around it. Uh, Thanks again to Curry's for their ongoing support and uh, thanks to you most of all. Drop me a line. Drop me a voice note. I'd love to hear from you. I'll be back same time, same place next week with another interesting guest and some more damn
2: good comedy. Take care.